Well, two Sundays ago, we considered together the God-breathed prayer of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul prays that Christ would dwell and reign in our hearts through faith, and that we would know the love of Christ. And of course, the Apostle Paul was writing first to the saints in Ephesus, but that word is from Christ to his church. And it has been written and left as the word of God for us that we too might understand and appreciate our Lord and Savior's prayer for us, that increasingly Christ would dwell and reign in our hearts and that we increasingly would grow in the love of Christ. And that is our blessed call and commission, and that is our joy, day by day, week by week. It does not stay the same. We are given the privilege and opportunity, not just on resting on the love that we already have or have experienced, but to continue to grow in the love of God. And to this end, this morning, we return to the God-breathed words of the gospel according to Matthew, to hear the God-breathed words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, which he gave to his disciples on a mountain in Galilee, where Jesus, as the newly arrived King of Heaven, begins to show his disciples what their hearts and lives are now to be. As citizens of his kingdom, they are to grow in his love. As citizens of his kingdom, they are to grow in his righteousness. As citizens of his kingdom, they are to grow under his reign and his rule and his oversight of their hearts and their souls and their lives. And their hearts and lives are no longer to be ruled by the righteousness and love of this world. Instead, their lives and their hearts are to be ruled by the righteousness and the holy love of Christ and his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, you'll see, is doing contrasts every step of the way. And he's pointing out to them, look, this is the righteousness and love that you used to live by. And it looks religious. But this is the righteousness and love of my kingdom. The righteousness and the holy love of God. And this is the standard for anyone who is going to enter into my kingdom. And this, brothers and sisters, is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Or more accurately, perhaps, the Sermon of the King. It's the good news of a new king. It's the good news of a new kingdom. It's the good news of a new heart and a new love and a new righteousness that all come from God and not from the world. It's the good news of a righteousness and a holy love that this world does not have, but so desperately needs. And this is why Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. And then in verse 20, he says to them, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, 
you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. The great need is for the righteousness of Christ, not the self-righteousness of religious leaders. And to help his disciples appreciate this truth, Jesus then gives a series of examples that contrast the self-righteousness of this world, the self-righteousness of the religious world, in contrast to the righteousness of his kingdom. And as we come to our text for this morning, Matthew 5, 33-37, Jesus shows his disciples how his heavenly righteousness and his holy love require a heart and a life that are both truthful and faithful. Truthful and faithful. Truthful and faithful very specifically, like Jesus. Why? Because this is the heart and life that is pleasing to God. And this is the heart and life that Jesus gives. And this is the heart and life that he requires of all his citizens without exception. And this is our big truth, if you will, for this morning. And perhaps I can have my my next slide, please. That Jesus is the king of truth. And he gives and he requires the heavenly righteousness of a truthful heart and life. Where do we get a truthful heart and life? Well, according to Jesus, it can only come from him. It can only come from the Lord. And our aim this morning is to learn from Jesus what a truthful heart and life truly is. What is a truthful heart and life that is pleasing and right before God? And what is a truthful and faithful life that fulfills God's righteousness? And then Jesus will go on to show us, actually he'll begin by showing us what it is not. And it's worth asking ourselves, as we get ready to hear Christ speak to us through his written word, do you and I have truthful and faithful hearts and lives? Do we have truthful and faithful hearts and lives like Jesus? Are our lives truthful and faithful in a way that are pleasing to God and right with him? If you have your Bibles, would you Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to backtrack a little bit since we're coming back into the Sermon on the Mount, and this is where, Lord willing, we'll be for the rest of the semester. And uh, we'll go to verse 14, but our focus is going to be at the end at verse 33 through 37. Matthew 5, 14, this is the word of the Lord. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until 
all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you would drop with me down to verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Well, brothers and sisters, we live in a different world, do we not? We live in a world of lies. We live in a world of truth enhancement through our social media. We live in a world where yes is no and no is yes. And where philosophers and educated people scoff at the idea of absolute or objective truth. All while their children crave and worship and beg, borrow, and steal to do anything that they can to be close to anything or anyone that feels remotely authentic. Why? Well, allegedly because nothing is real. And yet, if you ask anyone, are you a truthful or honest person? Most people would probably say to you, co-workers, friends, neighbors, most people would probably say to you, yes, I am an honest and truthful person. And a generation ago, the answer or reason that they would give is that they don't cheat in their taxes, they don't lie to their spouse, they don't do any of the big lies that other people do. For the most part, I'm an honest and truthful person. Now, for us in our generation, when people think of being honest and truthful, it more or less is about being, quote-unquote, authentic. That you are someone who is true to yourself. That you say and do whatever you want, regardless of what other people think. And this is a virtue in our society. This is what is held in high esteem, and this is what we pay to fill stadiums and concert halls and venues to watch and see and hear, that we can have some touch or closeness to someone who is truly authentic. And as we think about all of this mess, we see that everyone has a standard of righteousness. Everyone has a standard of truth. Everyone has a standard of honesty. And for most people, that standard of truth and righteousness is me, myself, my desires, what works for me, what I think is true or right, 
or correct. And if you think you're different, just consider our marriages. Just consider our families. Just consider our relationships. And maybe consider those areas where we have disagreements or even conflicts. Typically, most of them are tied to a standard of righteousness. And for most, the standard of righteousness is the way I think and the way I do things. And if you do it the way I do and you do it the way I think, if you lie the way I lie, if you sin the way I sin, you're okay. If you do it differently than me, you're in the doghouse and you're the bad and evil person because you do all those things that I don't do. And when we consider that pattern in everyone's life, and we've all struggled with that, it's worth asking, who is really God? When the standard of righteousness and the standard of what is true or what's considered honest or acceptable is me, who is really God? And in Matthew 5, through 37, what we just heard, Jesus shows his disciples that our standard of righteousness and our standard of truth, no matter how religious, no matter how excellent, no matter how zealous, no matter how biblical it may be. Well, we go to church on Sunday and we memorize Bible verses. It doesn't cut it with Christ and it doesn't cut it in his kingdom. Not good enough. And this is because the good news of Jesus Christ is that he came and he died to give us a standard of truth and righteousness that is different from the world. He came to give us a standard of truth and righteousness that belongs to God. And God is the standard of truth and righteousness that rules in his kingdom. This is Christ's gift, brothers and sisters, to you and I. This is his gift to our marriages. This is his gift to our relationships. This is his gift to his church and his bride. Even secular psychologists in all the blogs about why marriages fall apart, in just about every single one of them, they talk about the loss of trust and recovering trust in spite of the fact that they do not believe that there is absolute truth that life and your marriage and your relationships are all a probability. Jesus has come. He's died and he's risen from the grave and the standard of righteousness and truth he gives is absolute, it is objective and it is certain and it is eternal. And it is the foundation of every relationship you will ever have beginning with our relationship with him and with our heavenly father. And this brings us to our first point this morning. Christ requires pure hearts that are truthful and faithful to God. Christ requires pure hearts that are truthful and faithful to God. This is what Jesus is talking about in verse 33 when he says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. 
Now, it takes a little bit of going into the Old Testament to understand what Jesus is referring to. He's making a reference to the highest standard of truth and honesty and righteousness in Israel at that time. And it's the standard of truth and honesty and righteousness that was taught and practiced by the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders. And it was based on their study and interpretation of the law of Moses, very specifically the third and the ninth command. Exodus 27, the third command, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And the Pharisees and scribes interpreted this command as a divine requirement to keep all vows, all promises that were made to the Lord, and to not keep any promises that you made in the temple or you made to the Lord. God, if you do this, if you give me a spouse, a child, if you give me good fortune, I will do A, B, C, and D, and E. And these vows would be made publicly with witnesses. Well, if you didn't keep your vow, to do so was considered to be profaning or blaspheming the name of the Lord. It means to make his person or his reputation of nothing. And then in Exodus 20:16, the ninth command, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And the Pharisees and scribes interpreted this command as a divine requirement to not lie under oath or to perjure yourself, where an oath is a public promise that invokes something sacred to verify the truth. I swear to God, I swear in my mother's grave, right? All of those different professions that are made in a court of law or a business transaction or in a relationship of importance to verify that what you are saying is true. And one command covers the vertical, our vows with the Lord, our public promises to God, and the other are horizontal, our transactions, our interactions with others. And in the ancient world, life revolved around vows and oaths. You could not get engaged. You could not do business. Legal transactions did not happen. Any major decisions with the elders at the gates, all of these things typically involved vows and oaths because they were the guarantee that you were going to be good for your word, that what was said is true, that it was a trustworthy transaction. It was essential for guaranteeing trust. It was essential for any ongoing relationship because you couldn't have any ongoing relationship, romantic, business, family, or other, if there was not some sort of guarantee of trust. And in shame and honor societies, like Asians, your credit and your credit score and your credibility was as good as the track record of your vows and your oaths a public accountability that was kept to see whether we could continue to do business or whether my daughter should marry your son. And the reason and the motivation typically that people would make vows or keep vows or keep oaths is because their reputation in the community and everything that was tied to that reputation in the community, your righteousness, are you right with everybody, depended on your track record with your vows and your oaths. And in Jesus' day, keeping promises made to God or not lying under oaths is what made you a righteous person. 
And you can see the history of where swearing and profanity comes from. It's the idea of abusing a sacred name or a sacred person, of blaspheming, of using your words to manipulate or abuse or to control an outcome. And what we see in Jesus' day is that typically religious and self-righteous people like the scribes and many of the scribes and the Pharisees, they would add or go one step more in order to prove that they were more righteous than everyone else. And that's how religious and self-righteous people do. You're righteous, I can do one better. Let me add three or four more steps. We're supposed to meditate on the word. Let me tell you how many sermons I meditated on. And so for the scribes and Pharisees, going one step further to say, we're going to honor God, we're going to do vows and oaths. Everybody has to do vows and oaths, but I'm going to honor the Lord in this. They would not use God's name in the vows and oaths that they made because the name of the Lord is too holy. So instead of saying God's name because it's too holy and we're going to show respect to him, we'll use a, a name substitute, Hashem, the name, right? Or instead of swearing by Yahweh or God, we're going to swear by heaven or we're going to swear by earth or we're going to swear by the temple or we're going to swear by Jerusalem or we will swear by something personally sacred or important, my head. And in this way, they were demonstrating we're going three extra steps or four extra steps. And because we know the Bible so well, we know how to say vows and oaths in a way that shows reverence for the Lord and verifies our honesty. Now, that may sound ridiculous because that's not our culture and that's not our standard of righteousness. But in our day, we swear on Bibles. We swear in our mother's graves. We cross our hearts and it's not an ax right? And hope to die to prove that we are telling the truth and that we're trustworthy. And if we want to extend that principle, we think of what are the things that we do and say to persuade others that what we're saying is true or worth hearing? This is the practice of every society to work with a standard of righteousness to prove that we are right and trustworthy. But in verse 34, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or verse 35 as he jumps, by the earth or by Jerusalem. And then in verse 36, by your head. And then finally in verse 37, he says, anything more than a yes or a no, comes from evil, or can also be translated comes from the evil one. Well, what's Jesus saying here? He's speaking as the king of heaven, and he's speaking to those who desire to enter into his kingdom and are following him. And he is pointing out that all these man-made attempts to persuade others of our truthfulness, whatever it may be, however religious it is, is contrary to his righteousness. And to understand why this is the case, we have to understand God's word, and we have to understand God the way Jesus does, and the way Jesus intended. 
So put your seatbelts on. We're going back. Guess where? Pastor Mark's favorite book. We're going back to Genesis because we have to understand the context of the law and why God gave those laws to his people. And beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, God gives, it's worth noting, no account of oaths, no account of vows, and there is no account explicitly of covenants in Genesis 1 and 2. Not even for the marriage of Adam and Eve. There's no wedding vow. There's a celebration of joy, but there's no wedding vow. Why? There is no sin. There is no deceit. There is only the gift of a sinless union between God and man and a sinless union between man and woman and a sinless union between man and woman and all of creation that is protected by the truth of God's word. It's only after Genesis 3, after deceit and sin have entered into the garden and they've entered into the hearts of the first man and woman and they've entered into their relationship and destroyed it, that vows and oaths and covenants, coverings of fig leaves and words enter the story as a necessity to protect, to protect against lies, to protect against deceitful hearts. And in Genesis 12 through 15, God's plan of redemption begins with God saving an idolater named Abram. And as you follow his life, he's also a liar. And where does it begin, this salvation of an idolater and a liar? It begins with God giving a promise and a covenant where a covenant is a relationship that is bound by a promise and a sacrifice. And this promise and this covenant that is given by God is not for God's benefit. It's for Abram's benefit. That Abram might know that in a world of lies, where men do not keep their word, the God who has saved him is the God who is holy, and he is the God whose word is true, and he is the God who is trustworthy, who keeps his promises. The one whom Isaiah refers to in Isaiah 65, 16 is the God of truth. And Psalm says, the psalmist says in Psalm 119, 160, the sum of your word is truth. And as we walk through God's words, we see that trust, trustworthiness, truth, these are objective and absolute attributes of the one true God, the God of the Bible. Non-negotiable. It is who he is. And the Hebrew words for truth and trustworthiness are emet, and another word that you're familiar with, amen. Amen. So don't use that word lightly. When you're saying amen at the end of a prayer, you're saying it is true. It is true. And emet or amen refers to firmness. It refers to certainty. It refers to immutability, something that will not change. It refers to integrity. It refers to purity, something that is not divided. And the illustration the Old Testament uses repeatedly is the rock. 
God is the rock. He is dependable. Storms will come. Rain will fall. The rock will not change. It will always be there. The theological word book of the Old Testament makes the point that the illustration that presents this idea of certainty, but certainty within the context of relationship and love, what we sang this morning and talked about this morning, God's steadfast love, a love that doesn't change. It is the certainty of a loving parent's strong arms, unwaveringly holding and supporting a beloved and helpless child. It is the certainty of a loving parent's strong arms, unwaveringly holding and supporting a beloved and helpless child. This, brothers and sisters, is what God's truth is. And another word for truth is faithfulness, has said God's steadfast or covenant love, a love bound by a promise that he will not break, the promises of his word. What is it, brothers and sisters, that brings faith? We think of faith as this leap of faith. I'm going to go and do something that I have no basis or no understanding of. But as we come to God's word, no. It is the certainty and the truthfulness of who God is, that he is always dependable. He always keeps his word. He is true that makes him trustworthy and therefore worthy and deserving of our trust, our confidence with the entirety of our lives. And so we see this revealed, Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie. And that word for lie is vanity. Why do men lie? Because we change all the time. Because our hearts are sinful. We're different from one minute to the next. We make promises and we feel differently about it two weeks later. Or we're not able to live up to our promises. God is not a man that he should lie. Or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? And this, brothers and sisters, is the hope and the good news of the Old Testament. The God who saved the children of Israel is reliable. He's trustworthy in season and out. You can always depend. This is what gives us hope in times of trouble. My circumstances might be terrible. I might feel terrible. But one thing I know, God does not change. If he has said it, he's going to deliver. He's going to do it. His steadfast love endures forever. And we read Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's God. He's pure. He is not divided in his love or his affections. He is trustworthy. And brothers and sisters, this is God's standard of truth. This is God's standard of honesty. This is God's standard of faithfulness. Do you always keep your word in season and out to your wives, to your children, to the members of the church? This is God's standard of what is right. And we see by contrast what is wicked by definition and what is unrighteous by definition is whatever denies God, whatever denies the truth, And we see the fruit of denying God and denying his truth. Lies and infidelity and idolatry, unfaithfulness. 
Let me ask you a question. How many cases of adultery and infidelity in marriages are there where there's not a lie? Where there's not a lie that begins in the heart and is worked out in every aspect of that relationship. And we see why God compares idolatry to infidelity. It's about a relationship built on trust. It's a relationship that is built on the truth. It's a relationship that is built on who God is. And so we see wickedness, brothers and sisters. Wickedness at its heart is pride that says, I know better than God, and deceit. And so we see in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. You look at that and you see how the Lord connects all of those things together, brothers and sisters, from our white lies to our big lies, from our idolatry to our infidelities. And you see that the most horrific crimes, brothers and sisters, typically start not with a big lie. They start with a small lie and a small effort of self-deception. And God, as you can see in the verse that's placed on the screen, hates this and says, this will not be in my house. This will not be in my kingdom. I will not allow this to come into my family. And Jesus, as the Son of God, says the same thing. And men, as I look out at you, your leaders, you're to be protectors of your home. You're to make sure that your house is pure. So will you tolerate lies that come first into your house? No. Will you tolerate first lies that come into your heart? Because if you tolerate lies in your heart, men, you will allow the similar lies to come into your house and you will bring them in and allow them to affect your relationship with your wife and your children and every aspect of the life that God has given you. It's an act of love when God comes and says, I will not allow deceit to be in my house. And when in Exodus, the Lord God delivers Israel out of Egypt through Moses, he gives them his law, including the third and ninth command, prohibiting them from taking his name in vain, calling them to bear truthful witness, not to bear false witness. Why does God do this? He's not doing it to provide a list of rules and recipes to prove our truthfulness or righteousness. It's a complete distortion of the law. The law was given to be a tutor and a guardian to point us to God's truthfulness, to point us to God's trustworthiness, to point us to God's righteousness that we so desperately need, to point us to a pure heart, the heart of God that reflects his holiness the holiness of the God who has loved us and saved us for himself. And that's why if you go and you look through Exodus and Leviticus and you see the exhortations about not lying, 
most of them are tied directly to God's statement, you shall therefore be holy, set apart for me, for I am holy. The law was given, brothers and sisters, so we could see the beauty and goodness of God's righteousness and love for us and to see our need for it and that apart from his love and his righteousness, we are untrustworthy and we have nothing but untrustworthy relationships. Well, what was the effect of the law? It did not make men righteous. It exposed how unrighteous and how untruthful and how deceitful our hearts are. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Or another translation, desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And what's the proof, brothers and sisters, of this deceitful heart? Rather than trust in God, rather than trust in his word, we would rather trust in ourselves and our words and our abundance of oaths and vows in order to persuade ourselves and others that we are righteous and we are trustworthy. This is what Jesus is prohibiting in verses 34 and 35. You swear by the temple, you swear by Jerusalem, you swear by heaven and earth, and yet all of these things are connected to God, and you deny the fact that God is watching and he's overseeing. You swear by your head as if you are sovereign and you can control an outcome two weeks, three weeks from now, and you can't even change the color of your hair. You can if you can cover it up, right? But you can't truly change those things. The proof, brothers and sisters, Jesus is pointing out, it's all these word games that we play which are self-deceiving and self-serving because at the end of the day, we're trying to persuade other people that we are more trustworthy and righteous than we really are. And this, brothers and sisters, can be true in our modern-day church, in our professions of faith. We know all the right words to say, Jesus is my Lord and King. I got saved when? I committed my life to Christ. They're words, 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 which we can use as a secret handshake to let people know, I'm legit, I'm a member, I'm inside, I'm a good person. But God who sees all, it's not good enough. Because what he requires, brothers and sisters, is a heart that is pure. A heart that is entirely devoted not to our truthfulness and our righteousness, but it's true, devoted to God's truth and God's righteousness. It's a big difference. And for Jesus, the Son of God and the King of Heaven, this is what he requires because this is what he has come to give us. Blessed are the pure in heart. A heart that's entirely set apart and devoted to God's glory and God's truth, not my glory and my reputation in the community. That trusts in God's word and God's promises, not ours. And this, brothers and sisters, is what yields a truthful and faithful life. It's a life that is built on the truth of God, not my truth. It is a life that is built on God's promises, not my promises, because only God can keep his promises 100% of the time. When Julie and I got married, Dr. Street encouraged, exhorted us. He said, you know, when you have discussions, don't use the term never or always. You never. I always do the dishes. 
I always, you know, when you make those statements, you communicate 100% faithfulness and fidelity. And no one is that. When we use these extremes in languages, and of course, you know when those come up, they come up in our disagreements. When we're trying to make the case, I'm right here. And yet, brothers and sisters, far better to say, I'm not right. I may be wrong, but I know someone who is right, who I can go to, to give me mercy and grace in my time of need. This brings us to our second point. Christ requires pure lives that are truthful and faithful to God. Christ requires pure lives that are truthful and faithful to God. Commentators and scholars, Allison and Davies, make the point that when the truth reigns in our hearts and in our lives, when Christ reigns in our hearts and our lives, that mighty God, the oath, what used to rule the ancient world, it was referred to, oaths were referred to as the mighty God because it ruled all business transactions and all relationships. That mighty God, the oath, where when the truth reigns, that mighty God, the oath, is dethroned and rendered useless. You have a pure heart, and if you have a pure life, Brothers and sisters, you don't need oaths and you don't need vows. You don't need guarantees or securities that what you're saying is true because you are a truthful person. When our hearts are pure and purely devoted to the Lord, there is no need for oaths or vows or promises. And so Jesus says in verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. And he commands his disciples to be people not of their word, but of his word. To be people of Christ's word, where their hearts and lives are so consistently devoted to the Lord, so consistently devoted to his truth and his promises, so consistently truthful and faithful to God and his word that a simple yes or no suffices, no further guarantees are needed. And Jesus here, brothers and sisters, he's not exhorting them to be non-committal. That's what we think. I'm not going to make a commitment because Pastor Mark, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this next week or the way you aren't. So you might as well be obedient to the Lord, right? You're going to fail. But our hope and trust is that we have a God who does not fail and he's walking with us. And so, in fact, we are to commit to things. We're to commit to the things of the Lord with a yes. And we are to reject certain things and not commit with a no. They are both to be part of a believer's life. But what we're to commit to is the goodness of God. And what we're to reject is deceit and wickedness. And all of this is a commitment for God's glory, not our benefit and our reputation. And as we walk with the Lord, we see that our lives become simple. Not easy, simple because it's built on the simplicity of God's truth where there is nothing to cover and hide. And it's built on the simplicity and the humility of God's truth that guarantees only what God can deliver. This is the faith of God's truth that trusts only in God and not in man. And Jesus points out that anything more than this comes from evil or comes from the evil one. And likely this is a reference to Satan using deceit and words in the garden to persuade and to exhort Adam and Eve 
to believe not in God, not to trust in God or his word, but instead manipulating words in order to trust in themselves, to be authentic. Brothers and sisters, truthful words and lives come from truthful hearts and truthful hearts. They don't come from our promises. They come from trusting in the promises of God. And this brings us to our final point for this morning. Christ is the king of truth in an untruthful world. The good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters, is the God who is worthy of our trust has indeed come near. And this is why when we think about what we said he did in Lagos this past week, where the Apostle Paul gets excited and he's passionate, he says, I want to come and preach the gospel to you. And he explains that I am not ashamed of the gospel. Or another word, way of saying that is I have full and overwhelming confidence in the gospel. That's why I want to travel to Spain and I want to come to you and I want to share it with you again, even though you've heard some of this before. Why is he not ashamed of the gospel? For it is the power of God for the salvation of all men to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. And then he goes on to point out why. Because in it, the righteousness of God, not the righteousness of Mark Chen, not the righteousness of John MacArthur, not the righteousness of men or promises of men, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For the just will live by what? Faith. That righteousness, brothers and sisters, comes from placing our trust in the one who is righteous and placing our confidence in his righteousness and his standard of righteousness and his declaration of what is righteous. And Paul explains, well, what is the good news of the gospel in Romans 1, 1 through 4? He points out, he begins, the gospel, the good news concerning what? God's promise concerning his son, the promises God made to the prophets. It's Christ being the verification that God is trustworthy. God has made promises. God has testified that he is truthful and he is righteous. And the proof of his truth and his righteousness is that he has made things right. He has fulfilled all his promises. He has done so at his own expense. He has sent his son who has died to fulfill his promise that he would rightly judge sin, the wrath of God against sin, and the salvation of the people he loves and to do so righteously. And Paul points out the good news of the gospel. You don't have it, but God gives it freely in Christ. And then the rest of Romans, he's going on, and there's going to be these exhortations. Why are you living by this old standard of righteousness, whether you're a Gentile, the standard for the Gentiles, or whether you're a Jew, the standard of the law? You have a Savior, the King of Truth, who is worthy of your trust. And his death and his resurrection prove that. He is a man who, when he said yes, it was yes. When he said no, it was no. And he did so all the way to the cross, and he died. And he, then he rose again. So it brings to us, brothers and sisters, where is their hope? 
in a world filled with lies? Where is there encouragement when people you love or care for lie to you? Where is there endurance when it seems there is no one who is trustworthy? It is not in looking for authenticity, brothers and sisters. Christ has come. And let's not dirty his name with the word authenticity. He was not real, brothers and sisters. He is true. And because he is the king of God's truth, he is worthy of our trust, and anything less than trusting him is a shame upon his name. And the joy of a believer, brothers and sisters, and this is what Paul walks through in Romans, our joy is that in the midst of darkness and struggles, we have someone, a rock, who we can trust, who upholds us with his steadfast love and never fails. And as you walk as a Christian over days and years, this is what you begin to see over and over again. And this, brothers and sisters, is the joy of our salvation. And so we see is some practical applications as we consider what is stated. John 1.17, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then Paul will go on to talk about how through Christ, grace reigns, it rules our lives. God's unmerited favor, how does it rule our lives? Through righteousness. Through righteousness. It is the righteousness of God that sets us free. And so as we think about that, what does God do when Christ comes in and he rules our life? Bit by bit by bit, he shows us the inconsistencies in our lives. He shows us the areas where we're self-deceived and we're lying to ourselves. He shows us the things that we're placing our trust in that fall apart. And in kindness, he comes and he rules and he reigns and he replaces those with his righteousness. And he begins to take crooked paths and he makes them straight. And he begins to take crooked relationships and make them straight. And he begins to take crooked parenting and make it straight. Why? Because it's built on the truthfulness and righteousness of God. And we're able to be humble, brothers and sisters, because we're no longer defending our righteousness and our trustworthiness. We're standing under the protection of God's truthfulness and God's righteousness. So as we think about application, brothers and sisters, it begins first. Do you trust in Christ's truth and righteousness? Or are you trusting in your own? Whose opinion is more important? I don't think. You know, I, in my eyes, your eyes aren't so good, brother. You know, how many, how many times have you blown it? And how many promises have you not kept? Maybe you should start looking through Christ's eyes and through the light of his word. Number two, be filled with Christ, his spirit and his word. This is Ephesians 3 and Ephesians 5.18. Pray for that. And if you love your wife, men, pray that their hearts would be filled with Christ, his spirit and his word, and you be the agent because you can't speak and it can't come out of you if you're not filled with the truth of Christ. That's the good news of Jesus Christ, his word. So think about what you're filling your life with and just think, Media, entertainment, this, that, and the other thing, God's word. Where's it going to be? Well, that's what you're going to share with others. Be filled with Christ, his spirit and word. Speak the truth in love, the gospel. It's what we're called to do. 
because it's the only thing that gives hope and trust and faith and encourages in a world that's filled with lies. Let me add one more thing that's not on the screen. Pastor Mark's bonus, right? There's a lot of bonuses. Obedience. Paul says he's proclaiming the gospel so that we can have the obedience of faith. Until you obey, you don't earn God's love. You are not more righteous because you obey. Obedience is the path of knowing that God is trustworthy and knowing the fullness of his love. As we come under his reign, as we come under his righteousness, as we see and we try to obey God's word, we discover we can't do it. We discover we fail. We discover our righteousness isn't good enough. And if we're willing to look to the Lord, we can begin to see that we so desperately need a righteousness that he has already given at the foot of the cross. And so you see, brothers and sisters, if we never obey, we never begin to see the greatness of his love for us, and we never begin to see the beauty of his righteousness at work because of his grace and not our goodness. Close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our king and your standard of righteousness and truth and honesty is not the standard of this world. It is the standard of heaven. This is the standard that you came and died for so that we might have and possess in you. Help us, Lord, to celebrate and enjoy it in every aspect of our lives that others might be the recipients, Lord Jesus, of your trustworthiness, not ours. In your name we pray, amen.